Hey guys, welcome to episode 60 of True Crime Couple. As always, I'm Kay. And I'm John. So guys, we're currently in a state of delirium right now because as of this very second, we get married in two days, 17 hours, and 36 minutes. Terrifying. Yeah. But also very exciting. I know that's oddly specific. I just have an app open. So I'm not that crazy. Could you imagine like if you were that type of person that like have like a knew. calendar and like a stopwatch and like a whatever? Well, I kind of do in my app. No, so. I know. But imagine if you were actually. I am that person. Okay. <laughs> so we are just running around like crazy, but that is not the reason this episode is coming out late. In the middle of editing the episode, well, this episode that we already recorded, John got the blue screen of death. Yeah, it blue screened, and it's really terrible because it's not even software related. It's, it's actually hardware, so that's not good. Yeah, no, it totally sucks, and we feel bad that the episode's coming out late, but we didn't want to not bring you an episode, and hopefully the audio is of the same quality it usually is. We still have a little bugs, a few bugs to work out. Yeah, a little bit, so just yeah. let us know. So we just want to tell you before we start, don't forget to send in those scary creepy stories for our october episode it's already october so spooky season is upon us and i am so excited and my birthday's tomorrow too it is i turned 30 guys so it's a good it's it's a good one but it's a hard one so it's bittersweet is what you're saying yeah you know what 25 bothered me more than 30 like i'm like i don't know i'm excited it doesn't really bother me yeah i mean it is what it is it is what it is everybody gets old right plus we're getting married soon so like that kind of like counteracts i can't be worried about 30 because i'm worried if my linens are going to show up yeah or our chairs are going to be there yeah because we had to order chairs because the chairs at the venue were like really gross they were so we'll send you pictures of chairs guys all right so don't forget to send us your stories and if you don't have a ghost story or a creepy story We also would love to hear some hometown legend stories because those are always really good. And we just wanted to take the time out at this really important time in our life to thank you guys because you've been with us through this whole engagement because we've been doing the podcast for a few years and we got engaged, I think, a few like the month into the podcast. Yeah. So you've been with us the whole time. So we're kind of like, you know, a happy true crime family. Yes. It's really nice. And we just wanted to say thank you for being there on the journey with us. And we're excited for you to keep going with us. Another thing we wanted to bring up was one of our listeners asked what we call people that listen to us. Because some podcasts like call their listeners things. Really? Is that what happens? Because I, I mean, I know some some people do it. Some people don't do it. But we don't have a name for you guys. No. So if anyone thinks of our na- a name for our listeners, they can send them to our email address or you know just instagram or twitter and if it's really cool and we really like it then it's an amazon gift card for you and we'll make sure to give that person the credit too yes of course and i can't come up with a name because clearly i'm not creative because i named the podcast true crime couple it's it's really not that big a deal but i'm also not (laughs) i'm also not that creative so it's okay okay so let's get into today's episode The story we have for you today is an unsolved, well, kind of unsolved brutal crime from the summer of 1995. A young, because 29 is really young, guys, really young single mother of two beautiful girls is going to move to Thatcher, Arizona in the mid-1990s 
to give her family a new start in the predominantly LDS religious community. However, her dreams for a promising future are cut short after a terrifying home invasion. The only witnesses to the brutal crime, tragically, are the victim's two daughters. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In the mid-1990s, Marianne Holmes moved to Thatcher, Arizona to give a better life to her children. She was a single mother who was trying to make ends meet while also attending college classes at the local junior college. In 1995, 29-year-old Marianne rented a home on a busy street near the center of town from a man named Roy Black. The house wasn't much, but it would work while she was attending classes. The layout of the house was so small in fact, it actually equated to that of a studio apartment. Marianne slept with her two daughters on a mattress in the living room, which also had a TV and a loveseat couch, but it couldn't fit anything else. So when you enter through the front door of the house, you actually walk into both the living room and the bedroom of the three girls. If you walk straight down the hallway that's adjacent to the living room, you would approach the bathroom straight ahead and the kitchen would be off to the right. Now, within the kitchen is a second entrance, which was actually her back door. Marianne continually told Roy Black, her landlord, that she was unable to lock the back door. The lock was broken. So he told her that his son David would be around to fix the lock so that the girls could feel safe again. But when David came by, he seemed to be a little bit more focused on flirting with Marianne than fixing anything around the house. Now, Marianne was in the market for a guy. She longed to meet somebody who would help her raise her young daughters and give her companionship. But David Black was far from that for her. He was off. He would talk about conspiracy theories, especially those about the LDS church, which Marianne, of course, did not appreciate as she was affiliated with the local church. She had also just gotten out of a really strange and abusive relationship with a man named John Bercy. She told friends and family that he was nothing but a con man, and she would never see him again. However, she was afraid of him and warned everyone that if anything ever happened to her, it would be at his hands. In the summer of 1995, Marianne told others that she would leave her world open to a good man coming in. But the way she would do that would be to focus on what was important, her classes, her art, and her daughters. In order to generate more money, Marianne chose to have a yard sale on July 9th, 1995. Because the house was on such a busy street, the sale was heavily attended and most items were sold. Later that night, somebody broke into the home of Marianne Holmes and her two daughters. They were able to get in through the unlocked back door. The man, who would later be described by Marianne's four-year-old daughter, Ashley, as a lion man, stood in the doorway to the living room. All three girls were on the bed. Marianne stood up and walked towards the man, asking him what he was doing, and that is when she was struck upside the head 
with an object he was holding in his hands. The blow nearly knocked Marianne out, and she fell to the floor, holding her heavily bleeding head. It was then that the man, using rope, tape, and handcuffs that he brought into the house, tied up Marianne, Ashley, and her younger 18-month-old sister. I mean, that seems pretty brutal. I mean, I mean that's probably one of the scariest things that could happen is for you to be sleeping. You're kind of like in your, your home. It's your comfort zone. And then just some random person just comes in and just, just wrecks that harmony. You know what I mean? And brutally, too. Like, weapons. There are many different things to, like, bind you. That's terrifying. Yeah, and especially when you're in mid-sleep and then you are woken up by an intruder, you're disoriented. Oh, yeah. Now that she knows that she's been hit, she feels like she can't properly protect her daughter. And that was obviously done on purpose because she was probably the only one that posed a threat to the man that had walked in. Oh, yeah, definitely. But before we talk any more about what happened at the home of Marianne Holmes, let's take a break to hear from our sponsor, Vistaprint. For small business owners or people who produce their own podcasts, being plugged in and prepared when an opportunity comes up is crucial. Those moments happen all the time. They're actually happening right now. And having a business card that shows how professional you are in your pocket, ready to hand out, is the first step in making something happen. Well, your next big opportunity is coming right now, and we're here to help you. You can own the now with free shipping on any business card in any quantity. Choose whatever style, finish, shape, or paper you like and get free shipping. And because you can pick the colors, fonts, designs, and images, it means you can create something as unique and compelling as your own business. Ready to get started on your business card? It's easy. Plug your information and logo into hundreds of fresh designs tailored to your type of company. Or upload your own original layout. Pick the paper stock, style, and quantity that's right for you. You can even upgrade to a unique touch, like rounded corners. Order and receive your cards with free economy shipping. As if you needed any more reasons to choose Vistaprint, you can feel good knowing that Vistaprint uses only carefully selected inks and responsibly sourced paper stocks. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed, or your money back. They'll make it right. Vistaprint wants you to own the now in any situation, which is why our listeners will get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Just go to vistaprint.com and enter promo code TCC2 for free shipping on all business cards, any style or quantity. This is a limited time offer. So own the now at vistaprint.com promo code TCC2. That's promo code TCC followed by the number two. You support our show when you support our sponsors. So go check them out. Okay, let's get back to the show. So we are unaware of exactly what took place in the living room to Marianne as her two daughters watched on that night. But we have learned a lot through crime scene analysis and the autopsy report. Marianne would later be found in a fetal position with ropes around her neck and handcuffs on her hands. So based on the ligature marks found on her body, the handcuffs around her hands were put on really tight. 
However, the marks on her neck were a lot lighter, meaning that the rope around her neck was used more to control her than to strangle her. The crime scene analyst is going to say that it seemed like the rope was used more like a leash, like to hold her back more than it was used for strangulation. So, I mean, it is assumed that it was used for sexual purposes. I mean, yeah, I mean, whoever did this obviously is a little sadistic. I think they also had a plan and a fantasy to fulfill, and that's yeah, the only reason. Like. Yeah. You'd bring outside things because you want something specific to happen. Now, Marianne had one large wound from blunt force trauma to the left side of her head and many similar but a lot smaller and repeated blows on the right side of her head, but made with the same object as the wound on the left side. She also had lacerations on her knees and elbows. A crime scene expert reported that it led her to believe that the killer initially entered the house. He struck her hard on the head, obviously at first to disorient her and to make sure she couldn't fight back. And then once she was tied up, he had her bending down on her elbows and knees. Obviously, she was trying to like fight with him. And that's how she got the lacerations there. And while she was on her elbows and knees, he was behind her, holding the rope that was attached to her neck, and he was hitting her with the same blunt object to the right side of her head. So that is going to lead investigators to deduce that he was right-handed. So when you're looking at somebody and you hit them on the left side, it's because the object's in your right hand. And then now if you're behind somebody, and you're using your right hand to hit somebody, the wounds are going to be on the right side. So that's how they determined he was most likely right-handed, because that's where he held the weapon. Yeah, that makes sense. And because of the deep cuts on her elbows and knees, they are going to think that she was sexually assaulted while she was alive and being hit on the head. Now, eventually Marianne died from blood loss from the blunt force trauma to her head. And post-mortem, she was sexually assaulted. She was both raped and sodomized by her attacker using the same object that she was struck in the head with numerous times. So that's why they couldn't completely determine whether or not she was being sexually assaulted while he was hitting her in the head and was behind her. But given the fact that this seemed like a sexual fantasy that he was playing out, they think most likely that he could have been. But unfortunately, based on the trauma done to the body, it was estimated that he stayed for hours afterwards, sexually assaulting her with this object, all while her two children were there. And that it was very hard to determine if there was any sexual assault from like a physical rape versus a rape from an object. Do you know what I mean? Right, of course. So they couldn't determine that because of the damage that um, that the brutality that he it's hard to get the words out because like I don't want to say them out loud, but because of him using the blunt force object, there was too much damage done to tell what had happened before the trauma from the object. Right. And also, I mean, if you think about it, uh, if he if he had the the gall to do what he did by breaking into the home and doing all these things while she was alive in front of the children. I mean, who's to say when 
you know what his line to oh, like his line in the sand would be you know what i mean oh yeah like, it doesn't seem like yeah he like had he one. would just keep going you know yeah so well it's actually interesting because what he did was horrific and he did it in front of the two daughters and i mean it's going to traumatize them for the rest of their lives but he didn't physically hurt them he did cut their clothes off so the girls were bound by ropes both their hands and their feet and their clothes were cut off including their underwear but he never touched them so after he's done with his assault on marianne he is going to walk around the living room and he comes upon a picture of marianne in a frame and he takes that picture out of its frame and then he walks out of the back door that he entered from so Ashley stated that she waited until she knew that he was gone. And then she kicked out of the ropes on her feet and told her sister to wait there. She ran to a nearby neighbor's house, still bound and naked. The courageous four-year-old banged on her neighbor's door until finally they woke up, shocked at what she found on her front steps. The neighbor, whose grandfather actually founded the town of Thatcher, dressed the little girl and went across the street to investigate what had taken place. When she was finally able to get the door open, as it was blocked by the boxes from the yard sale that had happened earlier that day, she screamed. She got the girls over to her house and called the police department right away. So when the investigators were called to the scene, they were shocked. Little went on in that sleepy, mostly Mormon farming town, let alone a brutal rape and murder of a young single mother in front of her two children. The crime scene was brutal. Marianne was found laying next to the bed, which was located in the far corner of the living room. She was still in the fetal position, still bound. Her head was covered in blood due to the injuries that she sustained from her attacker. Blood soaked the living room carpets and was pooled in specific areas where it's assumed that he had kept her for a while on her hands and knees for a long period of time. From what it looks like, the, the pooling of blood kind of goes away from the bed itself that's in the back corner. So what I'm thinking, and I really haven't heard anyone else say it, but I think she was might have been trying to get away from the bed, like get away from her children. Yeah, I mean, I'll even take that a step further and said it's possible. She was just trying to get out of that room completely. Yeah. You know, you never know. You know, I mean, it's hard to say, though, but. It could be. It could possibly be that she wanted to get as far as far away as she could right. from the bed where the kids like were. Like she was just fighting, period. Yeah, no, I agree. So that's why the pooling is happening in different areas. The clothing she was wearing that night was cut into pieces all around her body. Investigators were able to collect a bloody shoe print in the carpet that did not fit the size of Marianne's shoe. In fact, it was much larger. It was uh, It was estimated to be a man's size 11 to 12. There was also a small amount of DNA found at the scene. But of course, we're still in the mid-90s, and the concept of DNA was relatively new. Therefore, there wasn't a lot of tests that could be run, and the collection was a little shaky. Of course, it's really clear here that this attack was premeditated. The attacker brought his handcuffs, his ropes, and also the murder weapon. But on top of it being premeditated, it's personal. Not only did he brutally attack her and stayed for hours after her, after her death, it's clear that this was overkill. 
but also he must have known the patterns of the family to feel comfortable enough to stay for hours. He must have known that nobody comes in at night. He also must know, you know, the type of town it is too. Like it's, oh, this is a quiet town. Nothing happens here. It's going to be totally fine. I can just kind of chill out here and stay as long as I want to. But it just kind of shows like how ballsy he is too, because some, you know, people, murderers, sometimes they leave because, well, they don't want to get caught, right? This guy's literally just staying there after he committed like an atrocity. You know what I mean? Right. And what makes things a little bit more complicated is the attacker took the money that she got from the yard sale that day. So it seemed like he was trying to make it look like it was a robbery, but no robberies end like that. No, not at all. We know what happens. Yeah. They usually come in and they just destroy the place looking for whatever they could take. Exactly. And it seems personal to Marianne also because she's the only one who is attacked. But it also is interesting to the psychology of the killer because why was that okay to kill that mother like that, violate her corpse in front of her children, but then you have, I don't know, the moral compass to not hit like touch the children it's kind of weird so it does say something to the psychology of the killer that that's what took place yeah it is bizarre so investigators are going to work hard to figure out who could have committed this crime however they ran into several obstacles first their suspect pool was massive not only did marianne attend a junior college where she came into contact with so many people She had had a yard sale that day, and it was estimated by attendees and neighbors that there was about 50 people that had visited the house during the sale. She even let some people use the bathroom. In the week after the attack, investigators interviewed 75 people, those who shopped at the yard sale and those Marianne had consistent contact with in her life. The other roadblock investigators had was that the only witnesses to the attacks and murder were the traumatized young children. And I cannot even begin to understand what the children were thinking. It's hard to comprehend something like that as an adult, but as a child, that most likely they're going to have to deal with that trauma for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, this is going to affect them tremendously, like every aspect of their lives. I mean... Especially since she was there, you know, she was a single mom, you know, so that's that must be incredibly difficult. Right. Not only did they lose their mother, but they also witnessed a horrific crime. And with children, usually like that manifests into not really like having flashbacks of the events, but having flashbacks of the feelings that you felt when the trauma was taking place. So it's they're going to have a rough road ahead of them to try and come back from this. But the investigators were wonderful in working with the children, and they made sure to be very sensitive to the traumas endured by the girls. And they did everything that they could to gain information while not making their situation worse. The youngest of Marianne's daughters was unable to verbally explain what she saw that night. Ashley, the four-year-old, met with a child psychologist about what she saw. First, she was asked to draw a picture of what the living room looked like before she ran out of the house to get help. The picture she drew was so sad, and it's exactly what the crime scene photos look like. So she was very accurate in what she drew. 
However, when she was asked what she saw, she could only say that she saw a lion man standing in the entranceway of the living room and that she spent most of the time hiding her head because that's what she did when she was scared. Now, not wanting to push Ashley any further, the investigators made the choice to focus on the crime scene and their interviews and kind of just let the child psychologists help the children, which was a really nice choice. Oh, definitely. So based on their interviews and information they received from friends and family, police were able to narrow down their suspects to three men. The first suspect was John Bercy. Bercy was Marianne's ex-boyfriend, who lived back on the East Coast. He had been abusive, and Marianne stated to her family and friends, like we said before, if anything happened to her, Bercy did it. Well, something happened to Marianne, so her family is going to offer up his name immediately. She seemed to have been frightened of him, and this really is going to pique the interest of investigators because the crime was brutal and very, very personal. Someone attacked Marianne that knew her and was angry with her. So investigators head to the East Coast to talk to Bercy. However, they were quickly disappointed to learn that he had an airtight alibi, and that completely eliminated him because he had no tra- he had no time to travel to Arizona. And obviously, I mean, people can say, oh, he hired someone to kill her. I don't think any hired hitman would ever go through with the attack that happened to her. No, no way. Because, it, you know, hitmen, they're going to try to make it a quick hit. Yeah. You know, they want to get in there and get out. They're not going to want to sit with a victim for hours and do very, you know, effed up, you know, things torturous yeah and like behavior. possibly <laughs> leaving evidence behind they're not going to go through that right. and they're also not going to do it in front of witnesses even if they are four years old correct and that's kind of what eliminates bercy from that list of the three the second suspect of course was david black now this was marianne's handyman as he was the son of the owner of the rented home black would know that the back door was broken as he was the one who never fixed it he always showed romantic interest in marianne but she always shut him down, even if she did so politely. First, she didn't like him. But secondly, and most importantly, Black was not a fan of the LDS religion, and she didn't like the way he disrespected her religious beliefs. But it was not what they learned from the interviews that made investigators suspicious of Black. It was his own actions. After the crime, Black moved into the home where the murder took place. He told police that this is where he felt closest to Marianne. Now, Black had a reputation of being the oddball in the small community of Thatcher. But could the man that everyone always wrote off finally have snapped? But, and this is a big but, as odd as Black is, he was and he had an alibi. He was in Utah at the time of the murders. So I don't know if it was him, but it is odd. It seems like he more just became even more obsessed with Marianne after the murder because he was a conspiracy theorist and it seems like there's a little bit of a screw loose. We'll get into that later. But he, I think, fed into the idea of her murder being a part of a conspiracy theory. So that's why he kind of acted the way he did. Yeah, I feel like he's more of a just a really weird stalker than anything else. Yeah. You know? Well, interesting you talk about stalkers. The third suspect is Philip Turley. 
Now, Turley worked at the junior college that Marianne attended. Those who knew Marianne talked of a man at her college that would try and ask her out on dates. She agreed to go on one date with him. However, she wasn't interested in dating him after that first one. And instead, she asked if they could just remain friends. But this was not the case for Turley. He was even more obsessed with Marianne after their first date. And he began to display what we know now is stalking behavior. When he was interviewed by police, it was apparent that he was very intelligent. However, in later interviews, he was condescending to officers and detectives. He had a warm demeanor with Marianne and was very eager to help the police. When investigators went through Turley's things, they found two very interesting pieces of evidence. First were plans for a house. The house is for him, Marianne, and her two daughters. He had a drawing room made up for Marianne and a bedroom for each of the girls. Now that's weird. Like if I went on a date with someone and they were like, oh, let's just be friends afterwards, I wouldn't like start making house plans for us to move into. No, it's just really weird. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes you not want to talk to that person ever again. Right. Well, she was unaware of that was taking place. And the second piece of evidence was his diary. In most of the entries, he talked about how he loved Marianne, but was scared to ask her out again. He didn't want to get shut down, so he just wanted to love her from afar. Another interesting thing is that Turley had wild blonde hair and beard at the time. So could this have been the lion man that Ashley was talking about? Now, I want to interject first before I get into the next you know, piece of evidence. The officers and detectives that worked this case were amazing. They worked endlessly and they were emotionally invested. And that's something we don't often see when looking into these cases. The one detective actually still talks to the eldest daughter, Ashley, on a weekly basis. And she says that he's become a father figure for her in her life. Their involvement in the case is inspiring and it's profound. However, in 1995, stalking and obsessive behavior was not as understood as it is today. And I can make an argument that it's not really understood today anyway. We know now what those behaviors can lead to, but our laws haven't caught up to what we've figured out psychologically with these people. Stalking behavior often leads to violence, but unfortunately there's no laws that you can really use to stop a stalker. And it's just a really complicated situation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So based on a psychiatric evaluation of stalkers, Turley is clearly a clinical rejection factor type stalker, which is one who is rejected and feels a sense of narcissism and entitlement. Clinical stalkers also have a personality disorder with anger or behavioral instability. We learn later that he suffers from bipolar disorder. Rejected stalkers are not only the most common, but the most dangerous kind, and they likely have a history of criminal assault, which makes them more likely to offend again. But because of the time, this wasn't analyzed as it should have been. You always just kind of wrote people off like they're crazy, but stalking behavior is very serious and it affects the victim. Because there was a serious lack of evidence and the only witnesses to the event could not explain who committed the crime, the case was a stalemate, and they couldn't bring charges against a man for writing in his journal. 
As the years went on, this remained a cold case. A very cold case. However, it was revisited twice. The first time was when DNA technology improved. There was a small trace evidence of DNA found within the home. Now, it was never revealed where the DNA was found, but many have guessed that the evidence was most likely found on the picture frame where the picture was taken from. However, when lab technicians went to retest the DNA, they realized that improper storing techniques had corrupted the small sample they had. I mean, you can't expect it to be any different. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, no. It's just it's yeah. an unfortunate situation. I don't think people understood in 1995 what they were collecting and how to store it properly. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, we've done so many podcast episodes where the cops were just absolute idiots. But it's not the case here. It's more just that they didn't know what to do back in 1995. Exactly. Yeah. So... Another big thing is going to happen for this case around 2013 when the TNT network decided to feature this case on their show Cold Justice. It's actually a really good show where two detectives who have a history of solving cold cases visit various states in the United States and try and solve the coldest of cold cases. They've actually solved several cold cases within the show, so it was exciting to see them try to tackle this one. And the show actually aired in 2016. So their episode on Marianne Holmes was one of the most riveting of the series. They go over the details of the case and break down the three suspects. In the show, they usually get to investigate the actual crime scene, but here they couldn't because David Black still lived in the small home where the murder was committed. Now, How insane do you have to be to live in the house where the murder you're accused of doing took place? Well, I'll be honest. I mean, I don't think he minded back in 1995. I don't. I still don't think he and minds then he now. he just stayed with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, they ask him if they can go in, and he, off camera, of course, basically goes starts going into his conspiracy theories, and you can kind of be like, okay, this guy's a little mentally unstable. And he says, the Church of Latter-day Saints is responsible for the murder of Marianne. And he goes on and on about how the church murders people who want to leave and then it's like you know that homer simpson meme where he like backs slowly into the hedges yes that's like (laughs) what the detectives were doing as black was talking to them they were like okay buddy hey i don't blame him i would be doing the same thing well i think it was just like he's a little unstable so i mean how much do you really want to be around someone who is clearly mentally unstable and you're telling him that you're investigating the crime that he was accused of so it's kind of like, let's get ourselves out of this situation as quickly as possible. So unfortunately, they weren't able to view the actual crime scene. So what they did was they recreated the crime scene in a warehouse. And that was the part of the episode that was the most jarring to me. Because to actually see the space drawn out, you get to see how small the living room bedroom is. And those poor babies, they were literally inches away from their mother. Well, I think that it's weird when you get more of a perspective, especially when something's drawn out or displayed the way that they did. Correct. You know, because then you almost like in your mind, you're making it like, okay, this is my apartment. You know, look like it could be the same place. I mean, you know what I mean? You put yourself in that situation, like in that area. 
where, right. the, where the murder took place. Because you're seeing someone actually stand there. So it's like, wow, that happened there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, that's what happens. So from the investigations that the show did, they found out some pretty interesting pieces of evidence about the third suspect, Turley. They found out that he wore a size 11 shoe, which was the estimated shoe size of the bloody footprint. He had worked as a prison guard, and he had access to handcuffs and a nightstick. And then that is when everything clicked, kind of for the detectives, kind of doing this reinvestigation thing, because the drawing that Ashley originally did, it looked like her mother had a hatchet, what looked like a hatchet, in her head. But now hearing that he had a nightstick... It makes sense with the wounds that she had that it was a thin object, so it would a nightstick would have done the the damage that was done to Marianne's head. But everyone was always thrown off with, okay, but what's that thing sticking out of the like? Is it a hatchet? But it makes sense that it's a nightstick because that's where you hold it. Yeah, because I'm sure, like, I mean, when they were looking at her picture, her d- description, it would might, might have looked like an axe in her mother's head or like if it was like flipped the other like kind of you know what i mean right. like using the back end of, a, of an axe but like that would not be ideal so right like she didn't know how to draw it but she right. just knew the shape of it right so that was an interesting new detail that came out also a previous girlfriend of turley was interviewed and she said that you now this is her direct words he was into the kind of fantasy sex from behind that included sodomy and neck restraints. It's exactly what happened to Marianne Holmes. And that was his fantasy. And this is the person who rejected him. Now, if you think about it, right? Guys, we have so much information right now that links it to this dude. Because right. you have his long hair, his beard. That's what got was determined as the lion man, you know? You have the fact that he is able to have handcuffs and a billy club, well, a nightstick, and all the other things that he needs to do what he did. He likes this type of stuff. So it's just all coming together, and there's no way that that's coincidence. No way. And also, I think it kind of explains why the girls weren't attacked. Because in his fantasy, they were his daughters. I mean, you know what? I never thought about it that way, but yeah, I could see that Mm -hmm. for sure. So although this was all circumstantial evidence... It was quite damning. So the detectives from the show and the show's producers brought their findings to the county attorney. However, the attorney declined to charge Turley for the 1995 rape and murder of Marianne Holmes. Because again, it was still only circumstantial evidence. But after the airing of Cold Justice, Philip Turley would find himself in prison. But not for the murder of Marianne Holmes. Two months before the airing of the show, Turley moved back to Arizona. Prior to this, he was driving 18-wheelers in the Midwest. His mother owned a trailer park, Country Western Mobile Park in Arizona, and he went back to help her manage it. Turley, who was now 54, and his partner, Alicia Nadine Gomez, who, interestingly enough, was 29 at the time of the airing, so in 2016, they moved in with another couple in the trailer park complex, and that couple was in their mid-50s, like Turley was. The four lived as roommates, 
And when the show was due to air, Turley took a trip to California to avoid the attention. However, when he returned, he found out the couple that he was living with was telling others in the trailer park about the findings of the Cold Justice show and that they were beginning a petition to get him out of the park. When Turley and his partner returned and found out this information, an argument ensued between the two couples. Turley and Gomez stabbed the couple stole their valuables, and left. But they were eventually caught and have yet to be sentenced, but are currently in jail. You see, it just goes to what I think happens to everyone that gets away with murder or just doesn't get charged. They will always find their way in prison, no matter what. Yeah, well, I mean, criminals sometimes, and unfortunately are repeat offenders yeah i mean there's a pattern you know what i mean i think that he probably could have killed this couple if it was like during the day and there was a lot of witnesses yeah so well that's kind of what what i'm alluding to i know what you mean his anger yeah like his anger just shows you that with the right circumstances he could have killed again it also shows you that he can snap oh yeah i mean that's not enough for someone to grab a knife and go stab somebody you have to, there has to be something wrong with you to do that. Yeah. You, no, I the normal agree. person just doesn't do that. I think that that kind of sealed the deal in me fa- feeling like Turley's the guy who brutally killed this woman and did this. And I hope that one day Marianne's daughters, who went to go live with other family members, I hope that they get the peace in knowing that the guy who killed their mother. And destroyed their lives is in prison for what he did. Yeah, because in my in my in my opinion, I just don't think that it was anybody else. There's just too much information that we found out that kind of links to him. So I just can't kind of write it off. I just can't. Like we know that he can right. snap and all the other stuff that goes with that. Sometimes circumstantial evidence is just it's so overwhelming that you're like I can't not believe it. And yeah. I feel like if he was brought in front of a jury. They would convict him. Absolutely. With that circumstantial evidence. Not not a doubt in my mind. Okay, guys, we would love to know what you think about the Marianne Holmes case. It's an interesting one. And we are getting married in two days, so we can't <laughs> wait to show you the pictures. We're really excited. We are, and I can't we can't wait to show you. So we'll make sure that we have all pictures um up on mm-hmm. our Instagram and our Twitter and John's definitely gonna cry. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll cry. I'll put every crying picture. You know what's really funny <laughs> is that Kay thinks I won't cry, but she has no idea. So, Aww. yeah, I, I'm You're good making at... me now nervous. <laughs> now I'm really nervous. <laughs> well, I try my best to be a, a man, you know, but oh, I'm wow. <laughs> but I'm very I'm very soft, though. So you are. anyway. All right. Well, we love you guys and we can't wait to bring you the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this one. See you soon. Bye, guys.